Good morning. Definitely on now. <coughs> uh, good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, as I mentioned before, my wife Joanne and I um, were here with our three young children. They're eight, six, and three. We have many tasks as parents. Um, we feed them, we clothe them, we provide them with a loving home environment, and we try to teach them that just starting a sentence with knock knock doesn't necessarily make it hilarious. Uh, but one of our tasks as parents is to teach our children that their actions have consequences. Uh, so one area that this, uh, this applies is that being disciplined may be the consequence of breaking household rules. Um, when our youngest was still a baby, um, we were surprised at just how often the family rule of no pulling on your little brother's ears had to be reiterated. Um, and they grow up, and the areas that they struggle with, the areas that we're teaching them, uh, change, and, and the areas that we're working on with them change uh, with them. But regardless of what, what rule it is, uh, if they break the rules, it may be that the consequence is being disciplined, just like the last 17 times this morning. Uh, I once asked our, our elder child a few years ago uh, what the word consequence means. And she thought for a moment and said, it's when you get sent to your room. So, well, fair call. That is one of the consequences in our house. It's not inaccurate. Um, but of course, actions always have consequences. Whether it's Newton's laws of motion uh, or, or complex social interactions, everything, for better or worse, has consequences. And the consequences, they don't necessarily seem to be uh, in direct proportion to the action either. Uh, take our family again, for example. Um, our youngest, Josiah, he's three, and he's a bit of a clown. Uh, being the third child, he likes to get any attention at all that he can muster. Uh, and it isn't unusual in our house that, to find that if anyone says anything uh, that gets even a small laugh, we'll find the same joke or noise being repeated incessantly uh, by Josiah. One small burp at the dinner table by one of the other kids, for example, it's going to result in a series of loud, fake burps being regaled with laughter by the older two, and we can't get them to eat their dinner for 10 minutes. It seems like a small action, but with Josiah around, there's a, there's a large consequence for us. So what does this have to look, do with Deuteronomy? Uh, let's have a look. We, we're approaching the end of the book of Deuteronomy here. Um, and one of the prominent themes that we see here in uh, chapter 29 is that for the Israelites, their actions will have consequences. Moses has been teaching them uh, through Deuteronomy thus far about how as God's people, and here, uh, so Moses has been teaching them through Deuteronomy about how to live as God's people. And here at the business end of Deuteronomy, we find the consequence uh, for either choosing to obey or to disobey. In fact, in the previous chapter, we haven't read it today, but in chapter 28, there's an enormously detailed list of all of those consequences, uh, good and bad, that we call the blessings and curses. <coughs> Excuse me. So to give us an idea of where we're heading today, uh, first of all, we're going to orientate ourselves to the first half of the chapter, uh, which is the renewing of the covenant between God and the people of Israel. Uh, we're going to spend a bit of time considering what exactly these curses in chapter 9 refer to, 
And then we're going to think about these curses as 21st century Christians. Now, and finally, we're going to delve into those curses themselves and the warnings in the second half of the chapter. Now, this is a grim chapter of the Bible. Uh, it's not happy. Um, and it's, it's, we, we read it that way because it is grim. It's, it's a, a dire warning to them. But there is an awful lot that we can glean ourselves from this as, as 21st century Christians. Um, and it can actually be good news for us. So let's get stuck into it and we'll see how it all plays out. Uh, so turning to our reading today from uh, Deuteronomy 29, you might find that the structure of uh, 29, um, it's a bit familiar because it has quite a few similarities with Deuteronomy 4 back at the beginning. And I understand you looked at that a few weeks ago. Uh, like chapter 4, uh, chapter 29 refers back to the covenant that God made with Israel way back at Mount Sinai, or Mount Horeb as it's referred to in Deuteronomy. So likewise, both uh, chapters 24 and 29, they argue for faithfulness to the covenant on the basis of what God has already done for the Israelites. Chapter 4 speaks of God bringing the Israelites out of slavery in the land of Egypt, here in chapter 29, it speaks of the miraculous provision of God in sustaining the nation of Israel through 40 years of wandering in the wilderness and all the military victories that God has already won for them. In both cases, God has already shown his faithfulness in his actions. But where chapter 4 recollects the covenant which was made with God at Mount Sinai 40 years previously, here in chapter 29, it's not just the covenant being remembered, it's actually being actively renewed uh, with this new generation of Israelites. We're not going to spend a lot of time looking at uh, the covenant renewal, but there are a few things that we should note about it. First of all, it's not a new covenant. Um, we see in verse 1 that this is an addition to the Horeb covenant. Um, it's the same covenant, but with additional detail. Uh, likewise, down in verse 13, we see that it's not, um, this isn't just in continuity with the Horeb covenant either, but it's also in continuity with all the promises that have been made to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob hundreds of years previously. So we could think of this as a new phase in the story of the people of God, but at its heart, it is still that same covenant. Uh, second, this isn't a theoretical covenant. Um, it's not just a matter of shaking hands on a deal and everyone hopes for the best. Just like in previous chapters, Moses goes to some length to demonstrate that God has already shown his power and faithfulness to the Israelites. God has already delivered them from Egypt and he sustained them through the wilderness. So the covenant is God's initiative and he's already shown that he's faithful to it, even in the face of rebellion and sin by the Israelites. So the covenant is based on the established fact of what God has already done for his people. And thirdly, this is a corporate covenant. Now, I don't mean corporate in the sense that God sends in a team of hotshot lawyers and to seal the deal and trademark the intellectual property. Um, corporate in, the, in this sense, it means that it's a single covenant for the entire nation of Israel, rather than thousands of little covenants with all the individual members of Israel. And it's not even collective, uh, it, it's not even just the collective sense of all the Israels that are standing there in Moab uh, hearing these words from, from Moses. Look at verse, th uh, verse 3. 
with your own eyes, it says, you saw those great trials, those signs and great wonders. Really? With their own eyes? He's talking about what happened when God delivered them from Egypt. Now, the whole point of them wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years was that, so that everyone that was actually there for those events in Egypt had died by now. So basically, none of this crowd actually did see those events, except maybe some of the children, uh, that were, uh, so some of the older people who were children at the time. Um, likewise, in verse 14 and 15, Moses specifically stated that the covenant was also being made with those who weren't there that day. Now, he's not just talking about poor Hannah who was out with a flu that day, or Ezekiel had to step out for a phone call. Moses is referring to future generations, uh, those who weren't even born yet. So the covenant being made, it's an all-encompassing corporate covenant with the nation of Israel itself, past and present and future. So, the covenant was made for the nation of Israel as the chosen people of God. But we as Christians are the people of God as well. Uh, Romans 11 tells us that as Gentile Christians, we have been effectively grafted into the nation of Israel through Jesus Christ. So this covenant that was made between God and His people on the plains of Moab, does that mean it applies to us? Are we under that covenant? Well, the answer is yes and no. Uh, in Jesus, we have a new covenant. It's a bigger and better and perfect covenant of grace. But this, this new covenant that we have in Jesus, it's still continuing and fulfilling the promises of the old covenant, and especially those promises made way back to Abraham. Like the old covenant, the new covenant is based on the work that God has done in liberating His people. In this case, not through the exodus from Egypt, but through the death and resurrection of His Son, Jesus. The new covenant, it's the perfect fulfillment of those promises that were made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to Moses and to the Israelites, to David and through the prophets over the centuries. So we might be in a different era now. We can still stand together with the, those Israelites and hear the words of God as He speaks to His people whom He has delivered. We're not ancient Israel, but we are nonetheless the covenant people of God. And for this reason, we should be listening very carefully to the words of Deuteronomy 29. So, in order to... <coughs> Excuse me. I had to infect myself with the flu to get out of a 70s-themed uh, quiz night a few weeks ago, and it's still not going away. So, in, in order to really hear the words of this chapter, um, we need to take a moment uh, to look at one word in particular. Um, what does Deuteronomy 29 mean by all these curses? The second half of the chapter, it speaks a number of times about people suffering the curses of God. Now, I think it's safe to say that it doesn't mean God's going to swear at them. Um, and it's probably not either something to do with a bubbling uh, cauldron and eyeballs of a newt. Uh, but what are these curses in this case? Um, in short, the, the curses, they're the consequences for turning against God. 
And in this case, it's especially referring to God's people themselves turning away from him. In effect, it's the manifestation of God's anger against them for rejecting him and failing to uphold the covenant. Back in chapter 28, there are 53 (coughs) detailed verses, um, so 53 detailed curses that will fall on the Israelites if they don't obey God's law, from developing skin diseases and having their donkeys stolen, through to being conquered by foreign powers and being scattered amongst the nations as slaves. Now, of course, we're not Israelites, um, and we're not under the law in the same way that they were. But does that mean we can ignore these passages about curses? The answer, uh, as it often does, comes down to what Jesus has done on the cross. Galatians 3 tells us that ultimately, no one can keep the whole law, and everyone is therefore under the curse of the law. But in dying an innocent death on the cross, Jesus himself, the Son of God, he took the curses of the law upon himself. And in doing so, he enabled us to come into a right relationship with God through faith in him. So if Jesus took the curse of the law on himself, does that mean we can ignore the curses of Deuteronomy? Uh, Still no, but it does mean that we need to understand them correctly. The important step, I think, in understanding the curses of Deuteronomy is understanding why they're there. If you look at Deuteronomy 29 in isolation, it almost looks like God is a vindictive, smitey sort of a God, just waiting for someone to do the wrong thing so he can incinerate them. Um, But that's not the case. Look look with me at the first few verses of the next chapter, um, in uh, chapter 30. Because where Deuteronomy... 29 left us with a picture of the disobedient nation of Israel being uprooted and cast out of uh, the land in God's great wrath. The beginning of chapter 30 tells the rest of the story. First of all, it's not optimistic. Um, this is, it's not presenting a case of if these curses happen to occur, it's a case of when. God tells them up front that they are going to fail. They will be ejected from the promised land and then they will be dispersed amongst the nations. We know historically that that did indeed happen. But here's the thing. Even before they entered into the promised land, even before all of that happened, God was telling them up front, it will happen because you're going to disobey, but God wasn't just going to abandon them to their fate. He eagerly waits for them to repent and to return to him so that he can restore his people. Uh, From verse 4 in chapter 30, let me read. Even if you have been banished to the most distant land under the heavens, from there the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. He will bring you to the land that belonged to your ancestors, and you will take possession of it. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your ancestors. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants, so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. So the purpose of these curses... Ultimately, it wasn't punitive, it was discipline. God had made his covenant with his people, and he would never forsake that covenant. Deuteronomy makes it clear that he already knew that his people were going to disobey from the beginning. So the purpose of these curses was to be progressive warnings to them, to remind them that disobedience has consequences. 
and to have his wayward people turn back to him. God was teaching them that their actions would inevitably have consequences. The judgment and the covenant curses that would be the consequence of disobeying, they seem harsh to us, um, but the consequences of not turning back to God would be far worse. They would be alienated from him forever. As 21st century Christians, um, we don't feel a lot of resonance with some of these things. Um, I don't feel particularly threatened by the idea of someone stealing all of my donkeys. But this idea of God disciplining his people and giving them warnings against straying, this we can take to heart. So with that in mind, let's now go ahead and look at the second half of Deuteronomy 29 and listen carefully to these warnings that that can be as much for us as for ancient Israel. So, back in 29. Um, one thing that stands out in the, in the warnings of chapter 29 is the combination of warnings both on an individual level as well as the broader corporate level. Um, while the old uh, cliche holds that there's no I in team, it remains that a single team is still made up of a group of individuals. So, these three warnings that we received, that we hear from this chapter... Some of them are individual, and some of them are corporate in nature. But ultimately, that division isn't necessarily that clear-cut. We're a whole community as the people of God, made up of individuals. So let's look at these three warnings together now. First, uh, from verses 16 to 18, we must beware the bad apple. The temptation for Israel to adopt the practices of the surrounding nations and to fall into idolatry was strong and it was unceasing. We know this because throughout their history, it was unusual to to have periods when they weren't succumbing to that temptation. But this isn't just a warning against idolatry. Uh, Even though Deuteronomy is full of warnings against idolatry, this is more specific than that. It's a warning against letting even a single person turn to idolatry. It's very clear how easy it is for a single individual to sway and influence entire groups of people. And the danger of having a single idolater contaminating the community with their practices was high. Now, we're no different, of course. Um, The New Testament is full of warnings to beware false teachers amongst us. Now, while the issue at hand is individuals who have fallen into error... The responsibility for avoiding this is with the whole community. How do we make sure that false teaching doesn't creep in amongst us? Uh, Like in our own church at Inner South, um, I don't doubt that you here at Trinity Bay, you hold the, the Bible as the authoritative word of God. And I'm sure you're encouraged to compare what is being said from up here with what the Bible itself says. Because as a, maturity, as a maturing community of God's people, we need to recognize false teaching if it occurs and call it out. Now, at this point, it's really easy for us to just think uh, about looking out for sinful behavior and, uh, and wrong teaching and those around us um, at this point. But I want us to be asking a different question. What are you doing to make sure that you are not the one that is falling into false teaching? 
or at least in danger of uh, doing so. Who is keeping you accountable? Who knows you so well to ask the hard questions when you might be slipping? Because I don't think it's easy or obvious to see these things when they start. And I don't think they are frequently, or if ever, start deliberately. It's not a case of someone waking up uh, one Saturday morning and casually announcing over breakfast that, you know what, I'm going to start a cult today. Yeah, I'm going to introduce some rank heresy and uh, introduce it to the church and lead as many people as I can into sin and destruction. That's ridiculous. Um, but the, the danger that we face is in that slow and subtle slide, that little by little, in seemingly harmless tiny steps, until you become a destructive influence in the church, possibly without even knowing it. So, the take-home message here, for the sake of yourself and for the sake of the people of God, find yourself a trusted friend, a Bible study group, whatever it is that's needed to keep you accountable to make, and to make sure that you're doing the same for others. If, this isn't out of judgmentalism, but it's out of love for our brothers and sisters and an eagerness to see the people of God built up and worshipping God uh, in truth. Make sure that you're in a relationship of some kind that actively seeks to keep you accountable. The second warning, verses uh, 19 to 21 there, it's a warning against the danger of presumption. Verse 19, uh, it describes an individual who, while engaging in sin and idolatry, presumes on the grace of God and decides that he or she will be fine because they're in the community of God's people. You can see the wrath of God in verse 20 expressed against such a person. Not only are they in danger of influencing others to sin, but they are declaring God's grace to be cheap, something to be manipulated and to be abused. Here's the thing. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he was murdered on a Roman cross to free us from the curse of sin and death. And in response, he requires nothing less than our undivided devotion. If we think we can just pop along to church occasionally or keep our Christianity kind of out of the workplace or out of our home life, or if we think that we'll be fine with God if we're part of the church community, Um, without having personally repented to him, if we think that just understanding some theological details, a list of doctrines, and kind of ticking them off in a box in our head without having them active in our lives, any of those things are placing you in serious danger. It is dangerous ground to presume on the grace of God. Uh, Turn with me uh, in your Bibles to Matthew 7. Let me read from verse 21. Jesus is speaking. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, 
for only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Those words should chill us to the bone. If you think you might be presuming on God's grace, treating it cheaply, then please do something about it. Repent to God. Come talk to Colin or one of your leadership here because God loves you and he longs for you to truly turn to him. The final warning uh, is the most dire. (coughs) Back in Deuteronomy 29. uh, And we see it there from verse 22. This warning, it speaks of the consequences of the whole community turning away from God. And with its burning wastes of salt and sulfur, it's not a subtle warning. Uh, In these few verses, no less than six different words for God's anger are used. It is a tragedy when entire communities of God's people turn away from Him, seduced uh, by the world and by false teaching. But notice who it is uh, that is mentioned in verse 22 and 24. The nations are still watching Israel. We saw back in chapter 4 of Deuteronomy that Israel were on display as God's people to show His power and His righteousness. That hasn't changed, but now it is to show His justice and His wrath on the people who reject Him. We've had warnings about dangers to individuals and to the community of God's people, but now we're warned about the effect on the onlooking nations. Now, I'm sure you don't have to think very hard to to recall churches or entire denominations that have fallen into sin and been disgraced. Child abuse, adultery, greed, corruption... How much damage does this do to the gospel when people think of the church and can only recall all of the travesties that have been done in God's name? When all they can think of is hypocrites. We must be concerned for ourselves and those in our church community. But that's not where the end of us uh, falling into sin uh, lies because it affects the mission of God to those around us, to people who don't know him yet. With these three warnings, it'll be easiest, easy for us to go away burdened by the threat of God's wrath. And that's why it's so important to remember the nature of these warnings. God isn't just waiting for us to make one wrong move so he can smite us. He loves us and he longs for us to turn to him in repentance and in faith. That's why he gives us these warnings. These warnings are lovingly given to prevent us from falling into sin and turning away from him. Remember, Jesus has taken the curse of sin and the law on himself. And through trusting in him, we can have forgiveness and eternal life. So let's not despair over these warnings, but thank God for them instead, because they are given in mercy and in love to prevent us from straying. 
The appropriate response to such a grim passage, it's not despair, but it's to take heed of the warnings and to turn wholeheartedly to the God who loves us. So let's encourage each other to persevere. Let us keep each other accountable in our efforts to live holy lives and to trust in God who has sent His Spirit to enable us to do these things. So with that in mind, uh, please join with me in prayer and we'll ask God to help us do so. Father in heaven, uh, you are good and you are holy. Father, in our unimaginable privilege uh, of being uh, given uh, salvation, of being given access to you, um, and to have being restored into good relationship with you. Father, we thank you for the mighty works of Jesus um, in his death and resurrection that has reconciled us to you. Father, help us to hear these warnings uh, clearly. Help us to act on them, uh, to look to our own lives and those around us, not to judge but to eagerly seek out holiness in your people. Father, please uh, protect us from straying. Uh, Make us a bright, shining witness of your goodness to those around us. Father, we thank you for these warnings. Through your Spirit, please continue to shape and change us to be more like you. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.